host Seraphim. Welcome to episode 21 of The Voice of Seraphim. This week's episode includes outtakes from our April 9th recording of episode 20. In this recording of The Voice of Seraphim, Eldritch and I are joined by Avenged, Fracture, and Dark Worship to discuss Dark Worship's first daily standard event, the development of his Tezblade deck, and do Mirrodin Besieged Crack-A-Pack. Voice of Seraphim is your source for all the news and information related to Magic Online and the Seraphim Clan. Seraphim hosts a weekly tournament, monthly leagues, and other regularly scheduled events, including a cube draft. We use voice chat and have an active forum at seraphimclan.org where you can find out more about us. Well, let's get the show on the road, because we got a lot to talk about. How about a round of introductions? My name is Dykax. I'm your host. This is Eldritch Song. I happen to Seraphim, your co-host. You mean with Warcom Gorilla? Dark Worship. This is Fracture. So, uh, Dark, I enticed you to join your first daily event on Thursday. That is your... Yeah, we, uh, both joined the daily event Thursday night, and I was running my, uh, Tezblade deck, and it was my first ever daily on Magic Online, and it didn't go too bad. I went 2-2, two and two, which is what I was predicting coming into it, but considering that my two losses were basically my mistakes or just horrid draws, I felt like I should have at least been 3-1. So you're gonna do a daily event again? I was thinking about doing one tomorrow, giving Tezblade another shot. I've made some adjustments to it to kind of help my early game defense. And of course, if anyone's interested in what Tezblade is, it's basically a combination of Kago and Tezzeret with Venser tossed in there. Um, under the standard forums on our site, I've got my whole Tezzeret experiment thread going where I've been keeping my notes on my Tezzeret decks and I've got, the first post on it has a bunch of different archetypes that people are working on. So if you're interested in Tezzeret, that's worth giving it a look over. And if you have anything to add to any of the decks or want to share your own experience or deck, of course you're should feel free to post on it. I actually wanted to mention that uh, some, a friend of mine was explaining his deck list to me. I don't know where he got it from, but it um, seemed kind of interesting where it was just, um, what's the artifact that you remove a card from your hand and you, you, cards that share a type where it costs two less? Semblance Anvil? Yeah, it was a deck with Semblance Anvil and a bunch of, like, of the two-drop uh, artifacts that can tip. And you'd basically get a Tezzeret on the board and play the Sunbelt on an anvil and just draw out all your artifacts on the board. And you had like a ton of them. And then, because um, they'd all cost, they'd all, they'd all be free to play. You just keep cantip in the more. And then you would eventually just, you know, like, perpetuate Tezzeret's ability and um, use his ultimate to kill your opponent. It was just like a, it's like a fun little, like, combo deck. The only problem I see, like, with that right now is I think there's only two artifacts for two or less mana that come into play and draw you a card. True. I, I have to go look at the actual deck list to see what all it actually has in it, but it, it, it sounded very kind of, sounded kind of like, interesting. 
So what has been your experience with Tezzeret? What does your deck look like now? Well, I wouldn't really call Tezblid as much of a Tezzeret deck as some of the other ones that have been kind of worked on because he's kind of in there as a secondary strategy. It's really the uh, Cobblade's uh, Stoneforge Mystic Swords package that tends to win the game. But Tezzeret, obviously, late game, can uh, animate a useless equipment into a 5-5. He can fetch up tumble magnets. So he's still got a lot of utility in there. He's just not the main cog in the deck anymore. But overall, if you completely build your deck around Tezzeret, I'm starting to get the feeling like there's just not enough high-impact artifacts in the format at the moment. Um, so hopefully the next set will give us what we need. Well, we can get to it later, but there's a lot of uh, colored artifacts coming out of the next set, which will be interesting. I noticed today in Clanchat you were kind of despairing of Tezzeret. Is that kind of what you mean about that it's not being enough action or support for Tezzeret right now? Yeah, because right now, really, if you look at dropping him, say, like, turn four or five, you have to be able to protect him, and the only artifacts that can really do that right now are Tumble Magnet, which means you've got to put in protections that aren't artifacts, which take up deck space that you need the artifacts for, or that deck space that you need for artifacts to really make Tezzeret worth it. So it's just kind of not enough oomph because you're kind of stacking your deck with the subpar artifacts at the moment. Have you seen the new um, white artifact that's been spoiled? Uh, operates almost sort of like a uh, propaganda. Oh, I didn't even realize that was an artifact. Yeah, I saw that and I was thinking that would be a great card. I just assumed it was an enchantment. So going back to your Tezzeret deck, it still seems to me like the first deck that you had was pretty uh pretty powerful and pretty uh and like it had a really strong start. I don't know, it just seemed fast and furious. My mistake. Well I think one of the misconceptions people have with Tezzeret is that you have to play him a certain way. But really you can build around you can build a deck around each of his three different abilities really well. And Originally, I was playing the Forge Master Tezzeret decks, mostly because I don't have access to Jace the Mind Sculptor. And uh, to really apply pressure with those decks, assuming you can't get your Forge Master, you have to use his minus one to get five fives. So it's more aggressive, whereas some of the other decks I've played, you really use him more for card advantage and searching out for specific artifacts rather than making the creature, so. Yeah. I mean, he, re, there can be a huge difference between one deck to another and how you actually play him. Yeah, there definitely is. Yeah, I noticed that while I was playing the, uh, the Tezzerator build of him. Actually, I, I didn't test the deck out as well as I should have, but I thought it was also quite powerful. 
But you guys were saying early on that he's a pretty narrow planeswalker. And I remember a couple of you mentioned that. He's, uh, uh, I, would say, I, I still think he's narrow, but I don't think he's the, the most narrow planeswalker. If you want to see a really, really narrow planeswalker, you're looking at like Nisa Revain, uh at the top of that scale. Or even more limited, but still very powerful, would be like Cobb. I think Tezbert's better than both of those uh, in terms of, you know, the decks he can be played in. Well, you just have to think about it. Chances are you're going to be playing him and using his uh, plus one ability at least 50% of the time. Unless you are got enough ways to tutor out artifacts from your deck to turn into 5-5s five consistently. But, so if you assume... You don't mulligan, so you have a seven-card hand. You play him fourth turn, you're going to have 50 cards left in your deck, which means you need at least 10 artifacts to average getting one every time, but you really need, like, 13 to 15 to really make it consistent. So that's what we mean by you really have to kind of build around him. You have to devote half of your non-land cards to him. I think maybe that might be a slight misconception, though, because I, I don't, I mean, if you, think, you look at his abilities as a whole, I don't think his plus one ability is the one you are using most of the time. And, well, I guess it depends on the deck, um, just because the Tezzerator deck that I was playing for a while only has, uh, I believe, like 11 artifacts in it, and it's still not a bad number of artifacts. Like I said, you need at least 10 to make his plus one even remotely worth it. Uh, but I generally find like that's enough draw that you can almost always have Several artifacts at to uh, to give minus uh, minus one two. Well, yeah, the Tesserator deck focuses around using him solely as a five five creator or getting tumble magnets if you absolutely need them. So he's supposed to be more aggressive in that deck. Whereas well, the average that, though, deck, it actually, it actually is more. I forgot to count the uh, the chalices and the mox opals. So that, the issue right there is about like fifteen sixty nine packs in there. Yeah, whereas the, my first version of Tezblade, uh, when I first took the book, took the uh, Barcelona list, that was only running, I believe, ten artifacts, and let's see, three of them were equipments. And of course, once you turn the equipment into a creature, you can't actually use it as equipment anymore. So it was very limited in terms of what you actually hit with his minus ones. So, I mean, you can run closer to, like, 10 to 12 artifacts, assuming you have a way to th really thin your deck out first. And your deck now includes uh, Vincer, correct? Yeah, um, see, what I ended up doing with the Barcelona list and transforming it into my Tezblade deck is I took the... Uh, Contagion class out of the Barcelona list, replace him with Pilgrim's Eye, which seems like a really stupid card to play in a competitive standard deck, but it really helps with the three three colors, so you can kind of fix your mana up. He's a flying body to hold a sword, and he's also tutorable with Tezzeret, or you can turn him into a 5-5 flyer. And then just about the entire list of permanents in that deck 
have either charges or come into play abilities, so you kind of put Fencer in there. And you really up your card advantage with, you really thin your deck out by bouncing the eyes in and out or the mystics in and out. You get all your equipment and lands. And then uh, also Venser's minus one ability to help push the swords through. And on the rare occasion that you actually get the emblem out of Venser, that's pretty much the end of the game. But Dicax one's up yeah, I won a $300 gift certificate from MTGO Traders. Now you're going to have all kinds of people asking you for stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there are a few suggestions on the forums about how you should be spending it. Yeah, you want me to buy Jace? Crazy. I don't know. That's, I guess that's always what I thought I would do. Like, just... Having to buy chase all at once, it's quite expensive, but I always thought about one, like a, uh, like one of those drawings, whatever, I would have enough to buy the full set, and I would not actually have any to, like, to, to watch my bank account uh, cry itself to sleep. <laughs> it's not quite as easy as you think. It really depends on your mindset. Uh, when I sold all, well, not all, but when I sold a large chunk of my paper cards off and then converted that to online tickets, um, I think I ended up with, like, 150 tickets, and I could have easily have bought like a Jace or any other number of expensive cards. Um, but that seemed like way less fun to me than just using them to draft and build other decks. Yeah, I mean, I guess, it, you know, like like Hex pointed out, I mean, it depends on what you want to do. Like, for me, the cards that I'm, I, I always feel the lack of whenever I see a cool deck and I want to play it typically always tend to be Jace the Mind Sculptor. It's a card that I really notice that I'm lacking. Uh, but if that's not the kind of deck you like to play, just, I guess it depends. I noticed you've been playing, like, Balakut a lot, you know, things like that. So maybe like other cards would be but like a better investment for you than uh, Jason my sculptor. I just hate Jace. Actually, at this point, I wouldn't suggest even picking him up. Not because I don't think he's a good card, but because he's only going to be in rotation now until October, and then there's no guarantee that he's sticking around. Uh, if you're going to do anything like that, I'd say hold on to it to see if, for whatever reason, he's going to be reprinted, reprinted in M12, which I doubt, uh, and then. Make your decision there, because I'm guessing he's going to go down in price somewhat after he rotates out. It might not be the amount that everyone wants to see it go down to, because he's still pretty useful and extended and uh, legacy to some extent. Well, yeah. So I mean, that said, you know, people talk about the rotation like it's right around the corner, but October is still quite a ways away. Not, I guess, not in the life of an entire set, but still quite a few months left to be able to play with the card. Yeah, but it's still it's still uh, quite a large money. Um, Financial investment just for like a few, just for like four months or however much longer is left. And if you're going to go that route to get a card that's a, you know, it's going to rotate out of standard and then you're going to want to use it in Legacy, you're actually just better off getting Force Oil. Well, I mean, the way I see it is if you, I mean, if you were to take the card now, the price for Jace, if it does start to drop, which it probably will toward the end, but it won't start dropping for another few months, you can just have them, you know, pick them up now and sell them down the road for the full price, maybe a few months later before the rotation and just grab them up again once it's out of standard. So I've been around... Man, it's, it's, go ahead. I've been around for the release of a couple of sets, but um, probably what I'll do is get Karn. But how long does it take a card like Karn to kind of drop down to more reasonable price. 
Usually the best card in the set drops down after about two or three weeks from the release. Well, it also depends on whether or not that card ends up being the best card or a ridiculous card. Like, Jace was the best card in World League, but he was also a ridiculous card, so he never really dropped. He just went up. Um, whether or not Karn will do the same thing, whether he'll stay still and not move off the price that he's going to start at, or whether he's going to drop or go up, uh, it's kind of one of those things you have to read into the way the format's going to see if you think that that's a card that's going to show up in a lot of decks or not. Yeah, exactly. I always like, but my problem with Whirlwind was I was going to pick up Jace, but I kept waiting to see when it was going to drop below a certain amount, and the card just kept creeping up and creeping up. So, I mean, that, that kind of card is hard to tell. And even cards like Tezzeret, who at first seemed like they were going to be pretty awesome, you know, eventually he kind of dropped down to what, around 36, which is when I picked him up, and then just for some unknown reason, just suddenly dropped down to 30. Uh, just a few days ago, and this is, and definitely it's been a long enough time after the release of Besiege that he shouldn't have suddenly changed in price there, so it's hard to tell what the plan swap here. But yeah, like, I guess what Crouch was saying, like, a few weeks after, or Dark, I guess, a few weeks after the release of the set, you should have a pretty good idea of where the card's going to be at. I think um, he dropped specifically because of Callblade. I think a lot of people were expecting him to... Yeah, I think a lot of people were expecting him to kind of front some new artifact-heavy uh, deck, and looks like several people have and tried to build one, but Callboy just ended up beating them to it. And what's amusing to me about that is that both of those decks need chase. Yeah, but I mean, Callboy's been around since Paris. Uh, it's only been recently that uh, Tezzeret's really dropped from 36 to 30 suddenly. Right, but I think what's really been pushing it is... Um, a lot of the Star City events, they've been doing a lot more events than I think even Wizards has been doing, and I think you're going to see cards switching in price more than they used to in the past because of the Star City events, because there's so many of them. I think they have like a, they have like a, I think 14 events a year now, so there's more than one event. There's almost one event per month, and then some months where you have two. So you're going to get to a point where you're going to see fluctuations in cards probably a lot quicker than we used to see. Not only nice. that, but it looks like everyone at Star Cities is running Cobblade too. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Right, and because they're kind of the big district, you know, the, the big flagship that everyone looks at for carding, um, I think that's going to start determining whether or not certain cards go up or go down. More so than it used to, even. Anyway, I think I want Karn, but that could lead us into a conversation about the spoilers, so. Yeah, I just want to say two things, and they're totally unrelated, but I think Star City Games was brilliant for bringing Legacy to the tournament. I think that was almost in a... Well, if you watch... Um the magic show with Evan Irwin, they talk about it a little bit. Also on the MTG Cast Network, there is, I forget the name of the podcast. I'll look it up while I'm talking. Uh, but there's someone on the podcast uh, network that does interviews with various different uh, people in the community. And he did an interview with Evan Irwin, which is actually worth taking a listen to. It's uh, pretty interesting. Um, where they talk about where the idea for doing all these Star City events came from and the reason why they do them. Um, so, if anything, it's worth checking out. I'll get the name of the podcast here in a second. 
So what was the reason? It's in summary to why they bring Legacy in. I I don't know what the real reason was, but I mean, aren't they one of the biggest secondary card market people? So to I don't know to advertise or play up a big yeah, you know what I'm saying. They wanted to sell cards. All right. Then, well, yeah. I mean, any the reason why anyone does anything these days in, in any days is to make money. Uh, the name of the podcast is Men of Magic. It's episode 23, I believe. Uh, it came out two weeks ago, um, and it's it's a pretty good podcast. Uh, from what I remember, I suggest anyone that's interested actually to just listen to that podcast because I don't want to misquote anybody. It's about an hour long. I just think it was really smart because they sell used cards and Legacy is the biggest format with, you know, all the cards. In, so I think some of it is in response to how the game has been going. Because you have Standard, and then last year Wizards tried to switch Extended uh, instead of being seven-year cycle to being this, like, what was it, like two-block cycle? Or, sorry, four-block cycle? <clears throat> yeah. And, it's not caught on, and the community actually has not liked it. Uh, if anything, Extended is now being played less than it was before. And because of that, legacy events have been starting to pop up because people enjoyed playing with seven years' worth of cards. Well, now they can't play with seven years' worth of cards in an official capacity, so they started running these events uh, because they wanted to run events. And one of the things that's bringing people into these events is playing Legacy because the price of Standard has gotten so ridiculous lately with, with the price of Mythics. Um, that you could either go legacy or go standard and pay about the same amount of money. So my second random thing is that I'm tired of hearing people complain about the shuffler on Magic Online. That's been an age-old, I mean, age-old debate. Yeah, as old as Magic Online. Um... I think I have an idea as to why that is the way it is and why playing about it is so much and saying that it's broken and it works. It doesn't work right. And shuffling cards and paper is a lot better than shuffling cards online. Um, I think it's because a lot of people stack their deck in paper. And they can't think, stack their deck online. Yeah, I think I think that's a common practice to stack your deck. I mean, I think that's the only, really the only way you, you can shuffle your cards without sitting there for hours shuffling your paper deck. The only way you can like, consistently get it to be you know, to work is to stack it. I think people just uh, aren't used to that, not having that on Magic Online. Yeah, it's random. It's truly random. It, it sucks when you get uh, some of the draws that you get. Uh, earlier today I was playing a game, and I, I'm i not even kidding. I literally drew Forest for 10, 12 turns. I remember also, like, uh, you kind of have to, when you're, especially like you're playing certain decks and paper, you really have to shuffle good, and you gotta sit there and you gotta make sure that you get the stuff out from out from blocks. Like, like I was playing Valka that day, and that's just a terrible because after the game's over, I have like 15 mountains on the board, and I have to shuffle them all back and make sure that they're, you know, that they're distributed, you know, at least, at least where I don't draw them all in the same turn. You know, it's like. You got you to gotta try and make it random, but at the same time, you got to make it like kind of like not random. I look 
look at it this way. If someone's complaining about the shuffler, they have two options. They can stop playing the game and go play in paper where there's rampant cheating, or they can play online and just deal with it. Yeah, it's just every time I see it, I, I want to say everybody else has the same shuffler. So it's not favoring you over anybody else or vice versa. So, and Yeah, just go in and adjust your land on if you're getting patches of lands or getting mana screwed every time. Yeah, exactly. Um, part of that comes just from not playing a deck enough, probably. If they're complaining about the shuffler, they probably haven't been playing long enough to really appreciate it, because, um, like, you know, like you said, that packs, everybody plays with the same shuffler, and sometimes you get screwed, and sometimes, you know, the game just, the deck just works out, and the shuffler is nice to you, but, I don't know, everybody's on the same playing field, which is why I like the shuffler. Right. And if you do think the shuffler is, uh, picking on you, then you've got a bigger problem than the shuffler. <laughs> exactly. I think so. I think some of it has to just do with card advantage, because um, if you build a deck that really takes advantage of takes advantage of card advantage, um, then you'll see that problem poking up a lot less, uh, just because you won't run into these sections of the game where you have you don't have any cards in your deck that have card advantage, and you're burning yourself out, and you end up with playing the uh, top deck hero game, whereas your opponent always has four or five cards in his hand because every other spell in his deck allows him to draw a card. Yeah. I actually have incredible luck when it comes to this game. Uh, uh, Online, my top decks, and you know, getting the cards, on, like getting the land drops I need when I when I need them. Like in paper, man, I can shuffle for like, point, like ten minutes, and not and get a ter- just a terrible hand. And Magic Online, man, like I, it seems like if I'm if I need a land, I get it almost every time. Or you know, just, uh, the shuffle will always be nice to me. Die Hacks has amazing draw luck. We had like a series of three game matches we played. His Valakut versus my various Sura decks, and every time I got him down into top deck mode, he just kept pulling threat after it. Yeah. It also really depends on your deck. If you have a, if you're playing a really combo-y deck, the idea that you're going to top deck something that's going to help you every time is a lot lower than if you just have a deck that has a lot of good cards in it. That makes a lot of sense. One of the decks I've been playing, well, yeah, one of the decks I've been playing lately uh, in the casual room is that is an enchantment leyline deck, and because there's so many leylines in the deck, almost every starting game starts out with two or three leylines in play, and then all of my spells I've got in the deck just take advantage of abusing the crap out of those leylines. So it doesn't really matter what card I draw; it's going to help. Would anybody like to discuss Grand Prix Dallas? Um, not much to discuss as of yet, I don't think. The results haven't really had a chance to settle in. I think they're in round eight now. One thing I'd like to see is because we always see those top eight, top 16s where probably like 75 to 80% of the field is Cogo or Coblade or whatever. I almost wish that it would give you a breakdown of how many people played each archetype, because I'm starting to feel like Cobblade's just been the dominant deck just because everyone's playing it. Because some of the things I've played, and, or some of the times I've played against it, or I've listened to people talk about their matchups, it, it doesn't sound like Cobblade really got that big of an advantage over a lot of decks. I think the problem with it is, is that with Cobblade, the whole idea is that every single spell you play is like almost like a two-for-one. All of your equipments do two things. If you equip it to a creature, then that creature can do two things when it hits somebody. 
your Stoneforge Mystic is already a two-for-one because it allows you to go tutor up a uh, equipment piece. And then, of course, the Squadron Hawks are two. Actually, they're more than a two-for-one. You cast one guy and you get three more. So I think the whole thing there is just another piece of card advantage. Yeah, I don't think, though, that anybody can argue that Cobblade is an awesome deck. I think what I guess what Dark was arguing is that the its reputation has been overinflated, which is causing it to be played more than it should be. Like what I thought was interesting was like you have in like all these American tournaments, uh, this Cobblade is showing up just everywhere, and then you have like Grand Prix Barcelona where you know like the top deck was uh, blue black control, and that just to me is weird uh, because you have to know that like the European players have to be paying attention to all the Grand Prix and Star City game events that are going on over here. And they all have to know that Cobblade's an awesome deck, and this seems weird, like, the metagame is so different over there than it is over here. I don't think it's for lack of cards or lack of, like, magic knowledge. I just think maybe this, maybe the reputation of Cobblade's being overinflated to the point where people are playing it, despite the fact that there are several other very viable options. Some of it has to do with the fact that once a deck like Cobblade, um, or even like John back in the day, starts getting amazing results, you'll see a lot more people using it as a net deck. And so what that means is that because so many people are playing that deck, so many less people are playing other decks. And I think right now one of the reasons Cobblade is working so well is that Red Deck Wins has not been a deck that has won in quite some time, so no one's playing it at all. And because no one's really playing Red that much, that means there's not a lot less burn uh, in the metagame than there was. So decks that normally would be fragile to burn, like, say, Cogo, uh, are able to just run around and do whatever they want because there's not enough people packing Lightning Bolts. Like one of the most explosive, like, quickest decks out there is Cabal Red, and it's, like, you know, Mono Red. Granted, that's, like, a, like, that's, like, that, that deck's the equivalent of holding a piece of Dominant in your hand, but. Right, but what I'm saying is that Kaldotha Red's not really bringing in tournament wins, and when you end up looking at some of these lists, and you've got, like, oh, well, you know, the top. 16 decks, 80% of them are Callblade, and I'm going to go to my next local tournament, and I'm going to play the deck that's going to win. I'm going to play Callblade. Yeah, I think it would be nice if we actually had some more diverse tournament results. For, like, for instance, like I was doing a, a compilation of standard decks not too long back when I was playing it. Actually, it was extended. I was looking for um, like the decks that have been winning and then going through the, the metagame for dailies and stuff like that and trying to figure out what's going on there. And you know dailies only show, like, the people that go 3-1, 4-0. And I just kept thinking to myself how nice it would be if I could see whether or not these other archetypes were just bad or whether or not they weren't being played enough to be to actually show up into these higher, like, to show up in the results, for instance, whether they were being played a lot and not doing well or just not being played that much. That's why the results were lower. Well, don't those metagame reports take that into account? Isn't that part of what they look like? Look at is the percentage of people that are registering that deck. If they don't, that's a it's like a big oversight. I think that information is probably somewhere, but I don't know that they've ever really posted it uh, anywhere for like mass oh, consumption. Okay. I just always assumed those metagame reports went over that sort of thing. But that is surprising. All right, looks like we're ready to move on to the next topic. Thank you. The die are we going to crack a pack of on Arjun's Destiny this month? 
Or is that even available? Uh, I don't think you can buy Earth's Destiny packs until the 11th. Wait, what? I didn't hear that. You can't buy Urza's Destiny packs online until the 11th. I think they're currently. Oh, that's annoying. I think they're going to that a crack a pack of that and have none of us having drafted before. At the same time, wouldn't that be kind of interesting to go on Uncharted Uncharted Yeah, no, that'd be cool. It's a great idea. I'm still trying to get opalescences out of that set, and none of the bots have them yet. Dykax, do the Kraken. Okay, you want to crack the old set? Well, it's not online yet, so we can't really do that. No, I meant mirrored and besieged. Yeah, let's do it. It's old now with the spoilers. Let's do it then. Let's crack a back. Doing it, doing it, doing it. Alright. Our first comment is Loxidon Partisan. 3 4, 4 and away. Battle cry. Is it just me or is it always the first comment? That's exactly. I was going to say the same thing, actually. That's funny. That card is terrible. Trash. Next. Silver Geyser. 4 and a blue. It's an instant. Return up to two target non-land permanents to their owner's hands. It has its use, but I would pick it first. I, I really think we need to, like, I really think we're, we're, eventually we're going to start just overlapping ourselves and saying the same stuff every time because it's the same commons and uncommons in the packs after a while. Uh, too late. <laughs> <laughs> Already happened. Hey, how about this? Maybe next week we crack something else, like ME4. Or some sets that are online that, so maybe we could do the. Uh, Earth's oh yeah, definitely. Week. It's a yeah, great idea. Um, yeah, What's the next one? We can do uh, Rise of the Eldrazi, uh, Razorfield Rhino, six and a white, four four Metalcraft. Trash. Next. Yeah, only play it if you can guarantee Metalcraft. Every time I've drafted that. I drafted with the idea that I would play it, and then I've never played it. Oh, poor Razorfield Rhino. The next common is Fangren Marauder. Five and a green, five, five. Not only is that a good card in draft, uh, but I've been noticing it's actually a really good card in Pauper, uh, because if you drop it on the field and you're playing against the Infinity deck, they just kind of do a sad face. To the sad face. Yep. It's awesome. Bladed Sentinel, 2-4, Pay White, Vigilance. 15th edition pick. <laughs> yeah, terrible card. I'd say mid-range pick, actually. I like the Vigilance and on it, and Fort Toughness is tougher to kill in uh, drafts. Dang if I don't have enough land, I'd pick that first. Dang and Dark, we're trying to make this as simple as quick as card pack ever. I see the thing though with that card is like it's a decent card for some decks, but it's picked so late by other card like other drafters that you can get it like thirteenth pick basically. I wouldn't take it before I had to. Interesting. Morbid Next. Blunder, which is one and two black. Turn up to two target creature cards from your graveyard to your hand. It's not bad. It's not a fuck. I'll quote from our last episode. 
It's really good if you have low-cost creatures that you can pull from your graveyard and put out on the battlefield pretty quickly. The next uh, common is Blight Widow. 2-4 in effect with reach. 4-3 in a green. Love it. It's good, really good if you're going green in effect because you don't really have a lot of flying protection. It's also good if you're not going in effect because as it's a wall that makes slowly wither stuff away. I can say that I've definitely first picked that card. Like the very last trap we did. First, first pick. pick? Yeah, first yeah, three right. picks, in fact. <laughs> Actually, that would be really funny. The uh, next comment is Tine Strike. Two and a one with flying and infect for three and a white. Oh, can I quote myself by saying it's the best white flying infect creature? Yeah. And I'll quote, uh, I'll quote Avenged. It's the only white flying infect creature. The, uh, next common. The, uh, next common. Go ahead. I was laughing. The, uh, next common is Mirror Sire 2. Colorless. It's a 1 1. And when it's put in the graveyard, put another 1 1 colorless mirror artifact creature token onto the battlefield. I'll quote myself, I don't really find that interesting yet. He just kind of replaces himself another, yeah, another one one, and then Tom will probably quote himself and say how I'm wrong. <laughs> He's the best dude that can make a dude when he dies. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I just gotta throw this in here, but he's the dude playing the dude disguised as another dude. <laughs> Alright. The uh, next comment is a bad card, so we'll go on to the Uncommon. Hold on a second. Hold on, one last second. Uh, I've actually had fun with that creature you named before, the Mirror Sire, uh, in conjunction with Mortipod. You can do it twice. Because you can but do anyway. it twice. No, it's good when you need a sack outlet. The uh, first uncommon is Fear of the Suns. Two colors, Fear of the Suns, enters the battlefield tapped, and with three charge counters on it. Move a charge counter from the Sphere of the Sun. Add one mana of any color to your mana pool. It's good mana fixing, and it's about the only mana fixing. It's good mana fixing, and it's also an artifact that you can sack stuff once the counters are already all gone. Yeah, exactly. The best mana fixer that's not green. It's a big shiny ball. First pick. Sorry, I'm looking up the value of my rear. Um, no, you're fine. I just uh, I thought my yeah, that's cool. Uh, the next ten common is into the core. Two and a, two and two red. Exile two artifacts. I'd probably main deck this in my draft deck, and depending on what my rest of my pool look like. Uh, if not, it's a great sideboard card. As you get rid, the only bad thing is you gotta have two targets, but still. And this block is pretty good because of the amount of artifacts. Uh, it's also good because it allows you to get rid of them permanently. You don't have to worry about them coming back. And you don't have to worry about them setting off things that require artifacts to go to the graveyard. So in the magical Christmas land that your opponent has a Fangreen Marauder, it's a good way of getting rid of artifacts. And not yeah. lock 
It's also an awesome answer if your pawn just happens to have that awesome walk-on engine they're going to tear you up with. Very much. And the last uncommon is Pierce Strider. 3-3 three, three for four colors. When Pierce Strider enters the battlefield, target opponent loses three life. I like him. Not bad, not bad. I, I like him just because I like him in conjunction with coming up with stuff that lets you blink him into play. Like him with Vincer is pretty sweet, but I don't know. That's kind of situational, not really something you would do in a draft. As far as draft goes, he's good for other colors that can't deal direct damage. Uh, for instance, he's good with like blue. Blue's got spells that interact with artifacts uh, in this block, and then after you get him in play, he's still a dude that can attack and block. I just like, I like that immediate effect on the board. Yeah, I like him because he's four mana. He's a three three, which is pretty solid, and plus the them losing life always helps. Yeah, he's basically a three three that are is he three? Yeah, that that deals damage and then trades with a lot, with a lot of stuff. Like, the, there are ways to bounce him. Like, if you were to draft him with, like, Limerick Point Stag, that'd be pretty sweet. That's what I did in my last draft. And how'd that work out for you? So, our rare is Contested Warzone. It's actually not... It's actually... Uh, People always tell me it's a terrible card in draft, and I've used it in draft, and i got to say, it didn't help very much. Just the sheer just the sheer way that draft games usually go, like, there's usually a lot of attacking going on, and it's usually not very one-sided, so your opponent, this card's probably going to flip-flop around the board like, like crazy. I've never been a big fan of um, lands that allow me, that when I am done using them, or if for any reason I have to give them to my opponent. I don't like giving my opponent uh, land advantage on me. So in standard, it's a card you have to build around. And you can actually build around it pretty successfully in standard. However, in draft, like like uh, Avenge said, it's problematic. I don't really like any card that I have to give to my opponent. Like, back in the Onslaught block, new one I remember is Corona the False God. That card is still terrible. Well, it's like in standard, you you know you you put it like in these super you super aggressive fast aggro decks where you know you're putting so much pressure on your opponent and they're not going to be able to attack you or they're going to be too focused on trying to stay alive to try to attack you to steal your the means of land and if they do steal the means of land you don't care because you already got them down to two life and you just lightning bolt them to death. But in draft or limited, it's a whole different ballpark and it's not as useful. I would go far as to say that in draft it's virtually useless. Have we ever cracked a mythic? Mm. I don't think so. Have we ever got a defeat that's worth more than five dollars? I think we got a quick silver gargantuan once. And maybe a massacre worm? You guys need to start letting me crack these packs. Let Pasta Crack packs and we'll get Foil Tezzerets for some time. I think I've only drafted Mirrored and Besieged, Mirrored and Besieged, Mirrored and Besieged uh, four times. And I've ended up with two Tezzerets. 
I've cracked two Tesserits off of prize packs from drafts, just because Pastas told me to open them instead of selling them. So I think he's a good luck charm. I think my favorite draft that I lost was a draft where I got the Tesserit and also Cough. Impressive. Yes, they get me a lot more tickets that allow me to draft some more. I, I, did a, I did a Swiss draft once with uh, World Wake. I won one round, so I got a pack. And I think I also had like two other packs from a cu- another draft, so I just cracked all three of them, and I saw the Jason, and I was like, oh yeah. I did a, I did a Rise of Johnny draft where I ended up getting Gideon and uh, Vegemon. That was pretty nice. I think the best so. I did was... I didn't actually record it. I had set aside a pack to open to do crack a pack, and we ended up doing like an online pack or something. And then later I opened it up and it was Fencer. I was actually at a store, and this to me is always funny. Um, it was the last box of World Awake that the store that I was at uh, had, and there was 11 packs in the box. And somebody walked up and was like, uh, how many packs are in the box? And I was like, well, there's 11 packs. He's like, well, I don't have enough to buy 10 of them, so let me buy 10 of them. So he buys the 10 packs, and the guy that was standing behind him, he's like, you're not going to buy the 11th pack? He's like, no. He goes, that's probably where the good cards are. He's like, well, I can only afford 10 packs. So the guy that was standing behind him bought the pack, opened it up, and it was a foil jace. That's just all wrong. Oh, that's... I would kill that guy <laughs> and take back. Right there. The how, how... When the uh, Deck Builders Toolkit came out, I was watching a video on YouTube of someone opening it because I wasn't sure what was in it. And the whole time, they it, they had opened it up and there was a World Wake pack in it. So they are like, we're just going to save this to last just in case. And the whole time they were making jokes about possibly opening a Jace, and of course they do it. Yeah, that was the uh, Magic Show's Evan Irwin from Star City Games opening that. That was funny. All right. Tell you why it's on YouTube. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us for episode 20. Are we going to talk yes. about our pick oh, for that last pass? Yeah, sure. What do you want to pick? Hmm, Black Widow. I'm probably going to go with Pain Marauder. Yeah, I can't help myself. The green fatty. Yeah, I'd probably take the Marauder also. Quicksilver Geyser. No, I'd probably go with uh, Pure Strider or Blight I Widow. I thought for sure you were going to say Sphere of the Suns. Take the land and pass everything to your left. Alright, well, that, okay. now I can say that's it. If there was a token in the pack, there I'd take is, that. There is, um... The rules for Metalcraft. Those make good box card dividers. Cool, that's a good suggestion. That's it for episode 21 of The Voice of Seraphim. I'd like to thank my co-host, Eldritch Song, and our guest, Avenged Fracture and Dark Worship, for joining us this week. On April 23rd, we will return to our normal recording schedule. Members of the clan can join us for the next recording of The Voice of Seraphim, on Saturday, April 23rd at 9 p.m. Seraphim time. Until next week, this is Dicax, and you've been listening to The Voice of Seraphim. <laughs>